This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Slender Man. Who is the Slender Man? Well, he's the internet's first urban legend. He's an abnormally tall person with a completely blank face. He's known to kidnap children, create psychic proxies, and cause mass hysteria wherever he goes. He's also responsible for the stabbing of a 12-year-old girl in the real world. Act 1. No, that's not spooky Patrick Stewart. The Slender Man has only existed for about a decade, and yet he's wormed his way into the global consciousness in an almost unprecedented fashion. This abnormally tall man with a completely blank face feels like something out of an ancient myth or Lovecraftian short story. However, the story of the Slender Man comes from a decidedly modern place, the internet. This mysterious and otherworldly character is a direct outgrowth of the creepypasta internet subculture. For those unfamiliar, creepypasta is a colloquialism that combines the terms creepy stories and copypasta. A copypasta is a means of meme generation and storytelling that involves large masses of people copy and pasting the same block of narrative text into emails and forum posts. During the days of the burgeoning internet ubiquity, these small stories would go viral, being consumed by millions upon millions of people. Perhaps you've received them. Usually little three or four sentence horror short stories that have a creepy twist or an eerie ending. Andrew, when when all of this stuff first started, like in the early 2000s, were you a person sending or receiving copypasta bullshit? Definitely not, re- not, definitely not sending. I, I definitely didn't do that. Um, I definitely got a lot of stuff. I, I received a lot, whether it was copy pastas or just, you know, weird chain emails or whatever. Just, I, I, I got a lot of stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, I just not, I'm not the type of person that does that kind of thing. Uh, in fact, it's, it's funny. It, it's kind of a running joke or not a running joke, but it's just a kind of a humorous thing. Uh, cause I, I work in social media and I, you know, for the purposes of this story, to just be a little braggadocious, I'm very good at using social media and understanding how social media works and utilizing strategies of social media to, you know, get people to behave in ways on social media that are necessary. But previous to working in social media, I I had zero interest in social media or like being social on the internet. Like my internet consumption was like lone wolf. Like I'm just like deep diving into these weird websites, like deep K holes, reading up about random stuff, researching things, learning about things. Um, I never shared it with anybody. I was, I was not like somebody who's like, Oh, I'm going to go onto this forum and like share this thing. Like I, I trolled forums to read stuff, 
Um, and sometimes I, I was in forums where I posted my own work, like music and stuff like that and videos. But yeah, I never did anything like that. What, what about you? You, 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 you share in son of a bitch. I know, I know who you, I know which one you were. <laughs> no, I was, uh, I was not, I was not involved in that. And I was too nerdy, you know, like that. It's, it's almost kind of like the, the copy pasta thing and like the, the internet horror side of things was like, there was a specific subgroup of nerds that I was not a part of. Like I was a part of the, like I was in a bunch of forums, but most of the forums I was in, in the early days of the internet stuff was like drawing competition forums and like comic book trivia forums. And yeah. Like, like submitting work that you've done. Not like, not like here's this fucking weird meme thing that everyone's talking about. Yeah. It, it's, it was more like, the pro-am version of like comic book farm leagues where it's like people trying to get into the industry and people trying to prove that they can do the work of like, look at this fucking awesome Spider-Man I drew or whatever. Yeah. It's interesting though, because I've all my fascination with, um, you know, meme culture, uh, and, and, you know, 4chan culture and copy pastas and all this stuff. My, my fascination with it actually came later. It came, it came, you know, years later, whenever I kind of, got into the industry and then sort of started realizing how all of this stuff kind of plays into human psychology. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we've talked about a ton on this show um, and, and, and the, the sort of side, you know, tangents we've gone on about like QAnon type stuff, the way that uh, ideas spread on the internet and, and uh, you know, how the social media can like hack your brain and, all, all these dynamics we've talked about a lot of, a lot of the show that that I I, can't, I became fascinated with this stuff like later on whenever I kind of realized and wrapped my head around that but back in those days I had zero interest in it like I didn't care about 4chan stuff or any of it at all uh and and you know slenderman as well like I I had like slenderman to me once again it's only it's only fascinating and interesting to me like now in the in this new context after this stuff that we're going to talk about in this episode happened, an idea like taking shape and spreading on the internet and almost becoming real because it's been spread so far and wide and compelling people to do horrible things and stuff. But back in, at the time, whenever Slenderman was first getting big and popular, it just it didn't interest me at all. It, I'm super into urban legends and cryptids and things like that, as we've talked about on the show before. But the reason why those things are so interesting is because, like, there's an element of, like, maybe they're real or, like, even if you don't think they're real, like, where did the story come from? And it's been so obscured over in so many layers of years that it has this mystique to it where you you can never really parse reality from fiction. And um, and then there's and then there's real stories. There's, there's like genuine horror stories. And Slenderman just feels like it's somewhere in the in the middle where it's 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 blatantly not real. Like, you know where it came from. You know, it's not real. You know that it all these things that we're going to talk about in this episode. And it's also not really a story. It's just kind of like an idea that people talk about where they're like, ooh, the Slenderman. And I hadn't I just had no interest in that. So one of the original creepypastas that gained widespread attention was Ted the Caver, which is a horror story that involved a man and his friends exploring a cave. The story was told in a series of blog posts. 
As the blog continued, the stories got weirder and weirder, drawing the reader in and asking them to reconcile bizarre facts or study horrifying photos for clues about the narrative. Eventually, creepypastas became so popular that they developed their own forums and websites. R No Sleep on Reddit became the unofficial home of these types of scary stories. But these user-generated narratives couldn't be contained to just R No Sleep. They spilled out onto other internet forums to feed the seemingly insatiable appetite for horror content. Virtually overnight, creepypasta became its own internet subculture. Which brings us to the strangely simple origin of the Slenderman. Most memes and pieces of internet culture don't have a single definitive creation point. The lack of authorship makes them embraceable by everyone, and thus inherently viral. They just feel like things that have been there, never truly willed into existence by one or multiple creators. However, we can trace the origin of Slenderman to a post on a website called Something Awful. The post was created on June 10th, 2009 by the user Eric Knudsen, posting under his username Victor Surge. Knudsen entered a Photoshop contest on the forum to see who could create the most horrifying image. He created two images of a tall man with a blank face. Under the first image, he wrote, We didn't want to go, we didn't want to kill them, but his persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. 1983, photographer unknown, presumed dead. Under the second photograph, he wrote, One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken the day 14 children vanished, and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. Deformities cited as film defects by officials. Fire at the library occurred one week later. Actual photograph confiscated as evidence. 1986, photographer Mary Thomas, missing since June 13th, 1986. From here, the Slenderman took off, garnering a cult following virtually overnight. Legions of people became obsessed with his image and backstory. Have you seen the uh, the photos in question? Yeah, I think I think I had just, you know, kind of gotten interested in like what it, what it was back when it started to become popular. And I kind of looked into it and sort of traced it back to the origins that it was, you know, what this says. It was based on some Photoshop contest, which that's the interesting part to me, the idea that it could start off as just this isolated because that's how everything is. That's how we, we've we've talked about this before. But so many beliefs are predicated on somebody coming up with some kind of lie or some kind of artifice for a specific reason and sort of never really meaning for it to go any further than that. And then it like somehow jumps lanes way back in an old episode. I talked about how a lot of these sort of ad campaigns from the 1950s have continued on to be these commonly held beliefs in American culture, like that you're supposed to shower every day because the guy who owned the Kellogg company was obsessed with trying to keep boys from masturbating. So he worked with a bunch of doctor lobbyists to spread a bunch of propaganda about how you're supposed to shower every day because he thought that if they were showering more, that they would jerk off less because they would be cleaner, which it, it, just the the mind of a low-key pervert. I dare not venture into that. The, that's the part that's really fascinating is that the, they created these things that were they were intended to be creepy. They were intended to be these scary things. But they were made for a contest and then they became like, that's insane to me that this thing that he did this for, for fun for this contest 
went on to do this, went on to become this. And that, that was, that was, I kind of looked into it briefly, but other, but other than that, yeah, I just, I kind of lost interest in it. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, since the listener can't see this, I wonder if you can describe what these two photos look like. So the first one, it's a, it's a photograph that is taken at a, at a playground. It's the photograph is in black and white. And I forget what year it's supposed to have taken place in or what they say the, t- the time period is 83, but it, is, it doesn't look like a picture from the 80s. And like they're just the, 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 the fashion of the kids and just the quality of the camera. It doesn't look like it's from the 80s at all. It's a little girl that's climbing up a slide on the right hand foreground. And she's like looking at the camera and smiling like it's supposed to be like a parent taking a picture of their kid. And then in the background, off in the distance, there's a bunch of kids that are just you basically in silhouette. Like you can't see their faces. You just see like little kids and they're gathered around like a dark figure. And they're all being obscured by the shadow of a tree. And uh, the dark figure is just a silhouette. You can just kind of see that he's like a tall person with like a rounded head, you know, like a bald head or something, some kind of monster head or something. And then he's got like the beginnings of like some kind of dark tentacles that are coming out from behind his back. And the kids are just kind of like standing around him, looking up at him and transfixed or hypnotized or in awe or something. It is a very creepy image, um, but it also doesn't make a whole lot of sense if the parent was standing there taking a picture. I feel like they would see that. It's not like a subtle thing where you're like, oh no, I can't believe I missed this. If this was really happening, this parent would be standing here taking a picture and there would be a giant monster 10 feet away <laughs> kidnapping children. And then the other one, or is this even the other one? My understanding is the first one is the one where there's a girl like frowning in the foreground, looking at camera and he's in the back. The second one is the one where she's on the 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 one that you just said of the oh so that's the second one okay so the first one i guess is this other one where it's just like a bunch of like more kind of tween aged kids those those other kids were like little tiny kids these are like kids that are like 14 15 and they're just like walking they're just walking in like the sand or so, or maybe it's dirt it's another it's another black and white image and it also once again does not look like it takes place in the 80s there's somebody in the foreground that's kind of like frowning at the camera. And then there's a bunch of kids in the background that seem like they're just kind of like stumbling away from something in a daze. And then in the far background, there's like a silhouette of like a Slender Man type thing. This this image isn't as scary as the other one. No. Yeah, and it also looks more fake, ironically, because he it, he doesn't – the way he's photoshopped into the environment isn't as convincing. and He's not – it's just like a dude standing there kind of it's obvious that he's implanted into a an environment that previously existed. But yeah, basically, you know, the, the this is the building block that spawned the Slender Man is this Photoshop contest. This guy comes up with this just kind of atmospheric origin of like there's this creature called the Slender Man and he kidnaps children. And that's kind of it for this initial spark that everybody initially latches onto. It's like QAnon Jr. Oh, God. So depressing because it's so true. Hey, this is Dave. Thanks for listening to the show. And I just want to let you know that the Deep Cuts Pod now has merch, baby. Go to deepcutspod.com. Click on the store link. Or by going to bit.ly.com slash deepcutsmerch or by clicking the link in the show notes. And you can uh, purchase a bunch of cool designs made by illustrator Daniel Taraka, my friend and fan of the show. Those designs come on a variety of t-shirts, sweatshirts, baby onesies, mugs, 
fanny packs, all kinds of stuff. One of them is a Tintin homage where it's Andrew and I running just like the intro to Tintin. Bacon and Legs Miami Nights shirt. Davy Bakes Papa Price Morning Show shirt. And a shirt that just says this shirt is kayfabe. So if you want to pick up some Deep Cuts merch, now's the time to do so. Act 2, Spooky Times. Eric Knudsen never really controlled or claimed authorship over the Slenderman, so the character has changed and evolved quite a bit over its lifespan. Most iterations of the Slenderman have common attributes, though. He's usually depicted as abnormally tall, with elongated arms and a blank, white face. His original version was roughly 15 feet tall, and he would have to crouch down to get inside houses. Now, he's usually depicted as around 7 feet tall. The associated mythology of the Slenderman has also evolved considerably over time. In the early versions of the character, he was just a very tall man who had these tentacle protrusions coming from his back. But over time, he matured into a character with a myriad of otherworldly abilities, who would use mind control to compel humans to do his will. The Slenderman also has a strange knack for warping or interfering with digital devices, making him extremely difficult to document with modern technology. He's often able to use psychic or teleportation abilities, and being in close proximity with him typically inspires paranoia, delusions, and nosebleeds. This unknowable evil with its malicious motivations quickly morphed and grew as people began writing stories about the Slenderman. In his early incarnations, he was commonly depicted stalking and traumatizing children. Newer versions have expanded on these appetites. Within a year, the Slender Man had become such a viral success that he had received his first adaptation. In a 2009 YouTube web series, would-be filmmakers Troy Wagner, Joseph DeLarge, and Tim Sutton began telling an eerie and disjointed augmented reality story focused on what they claimed were real-life encounters with the unknown. Like Ted the Caver before it, this Slenderman adaptation, titled Marble Hornets, was a web series that purported to be a real-life documentary with footage captured by the friends and showcasing appearances of the Slenderman. The web series chronicled weird happenings that the group of friends experienced. What perhaps gave them more credibility was the fact that the entire project was funded only with five Many believed that the footage and convincing effects the team created could not have been produced on such a low budget with such inexpensive cameras. In order to really sell the idea that they were experiencing these otherworldly phenomena, the group would upload at random times, and the videos would have little or nothing to do with the core story more often than not. Marble Hornets developed quite a cult following, and has since been compared to Lonely Girl 15, a series of fictitious web blogs that took the internet by storm in the early 2000s, as one of the most important early artistic works produced specifically for the internet. In all, Marble Hornets was comprised of 92 videos that encompassed the main story. There were also 39 entries on an accompanying channel to the arc that had side narratives and additional content. In total, the channel's videos have gotten more than 100 million views, 
Andrew, what are your thoughts on Marble Hornets? Did you watch it when it was happening? Was it interesting to you? I watched it. I, I fell off after a while because once again, I'll just say I, I I just it just it didn't really interest me that much. Like I'd like to sit here and say like yeah I was I loved Marble Hornets like I was like a huge fan of it or whatever. But I followed it for several weeks because you know they they upload they would upload videos like intermittently like it would it would be kind of weekly but they would also just upload random stuff sometimes with no rhyme or reason and sometimes it would be like literally just a 20 second video of a camera like sitting on a ledge like just shooting nothing and then sometimes it would be like a one minute video where you'd see some creepy thing, a ghost or whatever, or not a ghost, but you'd see like a figure in the background or whatever. And it could, it just vary. And sometimes it'd be a longer thing with more, with like dialogue and people. Cause I think the conceit of Marble Hornets is that it's footage from behind the scenes of a movie that these people are making. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I just didn't really care for it. I, I, I didn't get into it. Yeah. I was, I was so into it. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. But I also loved the idea of it more than the actual thing. Like I, I kind of had a similar arc, except I really was into it at first. And then I kind of like sort of fell off after a certain point just because it like the the draw of it is that it's this weird labyrinthian thing that's very weird and metatextual and it's a horror story and all of that stuff I was so into. At a certain point, I kind of drifted away from it too because it just felt like it wasn't going anywhere because of those, the random stuff that you had mentioned of like, you know, sometimes the footage would be them like all sitting around the kitchen table talking and it wasn't really creepy and it, it was just like, almost like, they weren't like podcasts, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, three dudes, four dudes sitting around a table and you're like, yeah, this is cool. But like, how does this fit in? And I don't know, maybe now that it's wrapped up, maybe I would revisit it and find it more compelling in its totality. But when it first started, I was so, I was so in love with the idea of it. And I was like, oh, this is the fucking future. Like this is, this is how you use YouTube. This is how you make cool, weird shit on the internet. You know, interconnected short form narratives is the future. And then it just felt like nobody had like they had the germ of an idea, but didn't have the resources to really orchestrate that. And then nobody else saw the ambition in the idea. So nobody else even really tried. Like there's there's been other versions of stuff that's kind of like that. But I haven't really found anything that was as successful as that feeling of the when that when Marble Hornets first started. I was really excited about it. Um, and then it just kind of fizzled out for me personally. Like I, I thought the, the first couple times they put those, like, you know, like a camera pointing at a wall for 20 seconds. I was like, Oh, this is so funny. <laughs> like this is genius. But then when they did that like seven times, it's like, all right, I, I get the joke, but like, is it building to something or is it just that same joke over and over again? In 2015, a Marble Hornets spin-off slash feature film adaptation was released titled Always Watching a Marble Hornets Story. The film is a loose adaptation of the original web series and the Slenderman online mythology. And see, I never saw this. I saw pe- I, I had lost interest in it, uh, in it at this point, and I saw people talking about it. And I just remember kind of just being kind of mind blown that a movie got made. But I but I never saw it. Yeah, I never saw it either. But I had a very similar reaction where I was just like, wow, they did it. What the fuck? That's amazing. Good for them. And then my second thought was like, I hope they didn't get fucked over. Yeah. And also just to put it in context, like even now, if you have like YouTubers or whatever that you like and they get a movie or whatever, like that's still kind of crazy, but it's not as crazy. The gap between legitimate Hollywood system movies and TV shows and like YouTubers and influencers has been like bridged a little bit. 
and it's not out of the ordinary to see somebody that blows up on YouTube and then like becomes a big actual celebrity. But at this time, that wasn't a thing. It was like genuinely crazy that somebody who made like a popular YouTube channel would get like a quote unquote real movie. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fucking surreal. Around that same time, another Slenderman web series, Everyman Hybrid, was also released initially in 2010 and it concluded in 2019. It consisted of 84 videos and six hidden videos. Additionally, a third web series titled Tribe 12 also contributed to the Slenderman mythology. So, the, and I guess the reason why I just wanted to touch on those four components of the Marble Hornets feature film, the original Marble Hornets thing to, and to the arc coupled with Everyman hybrid and Tribe 12, it's these four kind of groups or, or narratives that all kind of are telling the same story from different points of view all with the same basic building blocks, but because of the way that the internet works and how copyright low-key doesn't really exist, <laughs> um, the idea of Slender Man, even though it's really only, you know, I mean, there's obviously there was these kind of uh, people in forums writing stories about him, and we're going to get into the video game stuff in a second, but like all of this stuff just kind of like balloons overnight where it it's like a Photoshop contest. And then like two weeks later, there's whole forums of people talking about Slenderman, which I can't personally think of stuff that has spread that rapidly in modern time. Like that's just fucking crazy. Yeah. It was kind of like the on the forefront of that becoming a thing. There wasn't really anything like that before it. And there kind of isn't anything like that now because and I, and I want to talk about this more later on when we get to like into the act three stuff. The Internet and culture is just so big and fractured that something like this doesn't seem like it could really happen again. Yeah, because everybody's off in their own little silos. So it was really just this one. It was just kind of this one moment in the, in the fucking universe where all the conditions were perfect for this thing to happen. Yeah, completely. And all of this success, you know, the, the, the short stories, the forum posts, these web series, even the movie, they kind of are leading towards a critical mass moment for Slender Man, which actually kind of took a little bit of an unconventional road in that you would think it would be one of these movies or web series that really put him on the map. But the aspect of Slender Man that really took hold of a younger demographic and just kind of completely enraptured culture was when Marble Hornets got a video game adaptation called Slender colon The Eight Pages. You play as someone lost in a forest attempting to find eight pages from a book that Slender Man has strewn among the rocks and trees. The game developed a significant cult following, with fans of Slenderman propelling the game and the character to new heights. Within the game, though, Slenderman is only referred to as, in air quotes, the operator, which is, it's very, it's it's fascinating that it it took that, like, because I, I actually saw stuff from the video game before I knew what he was, before any of this stuff. Eh, maybe that's not true. My memory is that I saw the video game first, but I don't think that makes sense with the timeline because I was aware of him probably prior to the game. I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that Marble Hornets was like well going before the game ever came out. I just have this memory of like, I have this memory of seeing somebody playing the game and be like, you just wander around the fucking woods. Yeah, but like, but it's really scary. Kids loved it. And, and it and it is kind of creepy to watch. I mean, I, I watched I watched a few. I mean, it's funny because I'm getting memories now. I mean, it's kind of like coming back to me that 
I remember that I, I kept like trying to like Slenderman. I, I, I kind of like forgot about that element of it, but now I'm kind of re- bringing up this game. I'm now remembering that every time like a new Slenderman thing happened, I kept like trying to get into it. Cause I, I guess I could just always thought like it felt like a thing that I should like. I feel like this is something that I would be into because it's like weird and creepy and it's kind of Lovecraftian. So I remember, you know, watching Marble Hornets and whatever other stuff. And then specifically this game, trying to play this game. And I, and but more than that, I remember watching a few of like the reaction videos that would pass around the Internet. A couple of them were just like, watch how scared these little kids get. And then there was like one where it was Bane. Like it was like, it was like that, like that. That's what Slender Man was to me. It was like, oh, it's like. It's this thing that's all the, the bunch of viral like things happening where there's one where it's Bane playing the Slender game. It's also pretty weird, too, because like he's not he, he has all these like bootleg versions of himself, too, where like, you know, in, in Slender, the eight pages like he's he is Slender Man, but like they name him the operator, you know, low key so they can like copyright it and shit. And then, uh, you know, he, he showed up in like in like Minecraft, you know, like he. Like the the Endermen in Minecraft are na- are like just they're him. It's so it's so weird that he like is everywhere, but also isn't there because there's not a central hub for the character. There's no like creator in air quotes. Well, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of what the analog is because as I said before, Slenderman was like and and as we'll get into with the documentary, Slenderman was like the shit for like 11 year olds in 2008, and that and so all these places where he's popping up you know, being in Minecraft and this, you know, this game getting made, which is like a very simple game that a kid could play. Uh, it's not, a, it's not a complicated, hard to play game. Uh, it, it's all kind of dictated by the fact that this character was sort of latched onto by little kids. And we'll talk about this more, you know, later, but the, you know, the, the little, the, the culture around Slenderman was a lot of little kids like making weird, creepy YouTube videos where they staged that they were getting attacked by him and stuff like that. And I'm trying to think of what the analog is for us. Like what, what, what was the thing that we were really into that was like so ubiquitous that it would just appear in all pop culture in, in various forms like this. I mean, the only thing that I can kind of think of that's sort of similar is, is the way the slasher villains were treated in the eighties. But like you and I didn't experience that, but like nightmare on my street. Yeah. And Freddie and Jason and those characters in the, in the eighties and the early nineties were everywhere and I mean, I speaking personally, like I loved Freddy Krueger. I still love Freddy Krueger. Like he's my favorite like slasher villain. And it's really weird for like a 12 year old to be obsessed with a pedophilic burned psychic manifestation of trauma with like a fucking like knife hand. Like it's really bizarre and not cool. But here we are. And it's kind of the equivalent. But the, the thing that separates it, I think, is that Freddy Krueger, you know, is a movie character. You know, he's he's Robert England. You know, he's owned by New Line Cinema. You know, next year there's going to be a new movie and you hope it's good, but it probably won't be because most of them aren't. And like with Slenderman, it's this weird thing where he's kind of everywhere and you see him all the time. And like there's all these urban legends that he's real and you're like, maybe he is real. I want him to be real. Like I wanted Freddy Krueger to be real as a kid. I wanted to fucking hang out with Freddy Krueger and and kill people as a kid. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to oh, be God, in those movies. Dave, no. I mean, come on. Who anybody who watches those slasher movies and is like, I identify with the human characters. It's like, no, 
everybody lives out their their frustrations through these slasher villains. And, you know, whether that's appropriate or says something about me as a person or, you know, whatever, like, come on, man, it's, it is what it is. Like, we're all cu- culturally having a catharsis of the everyday grievances of being a person where you're like, ah, oh, fuck you, Johnny Depp and your good looking face. Get sucked into that bed, you piece of shit. Fuck you. Like, it's it's fun to see those people die. And of course you want. Freddy to lose in the end like he's a piece of shit but also he's fun he says the things that you want to say in real life it's a a wish fulfillment right and I think that there's a component of that you were, you were a little kid who was wanting to go around being like I'm gonna fucking kill you bitch <laughs> yeah dude I was a little kid that was just like welcome to prime time bitch my little brother wanted to be Michael Myers he, he watched those movies way too young he Definitely should not have watched them that young. And he like wanted to, it was scary. He, he was like, I want to murder people. And my, and, and my other brother, uh, one, one night we watched Scream on, on video in the living room and he got so scared that he couldn't go to the bathroom and he pooped his pants. <laughs> he John McAfee'd himself. Yes. <laughs> And then he grew up to be a juggalo. <laughs> I love the idea of being so scared by Ghostface that you shit yourself. Yeah, he, I was like, we were we watched Scream, and then like it was like we we watched it, and it was long over, and we were like the TV was on, and we were just but we were just like going to sleep or something, and uh, I just I smelled something terrible, <laughs> and I was like, oh god, and he yeah he he like didn't want to get up and go to the bathroom, so he pooped his pants. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. So <laughs> I can't help it. I can't help it. I love that visual. I love the visual. I relate to that so much. It feels like when you're a little kid and something is so scary. It's so scary that you just, you can't move. And you're just like, I'm going to fucking shit myself right now if I don't go to the bathroom. And you're like, but if I move... Ghostface is going to kill me. Like it's not a, it's not a. Oh, he's a movie character. It is real for you. And so if I get off this fucking ottoman right now and go to the bathroom, I'm dead. So if I have to choose between shitting myself or dying, I'm gonna choose shitting myself. McAfee it up, baby. <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Oh. I relate to that. Not that I, I don't relate to the shitting yourself thing as much, but I relate to the like. You heard it here first, folks. Dave relates to Freddy Krueger and shitting his pants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? You didn't, you didn't, you weren't, which, which one of the slashers were you into as a kid? Were you not into one of them? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was, I, I liked the movies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe my relationship with the movies as like wanting to hang out with the killers. <laughs> that's, that's not how I would describe my, the dynamic. I mean, it makes sense. I'm like a, I'm a, I'm a crazy extrovert where I'm out here like screaming and yelling and being an idiot. Of course, I'm going to like the one that's, hey, kids, it's okay to be an idiot in public. That's the reason why I loved Big Dick Charlie, <laughs> like like the slasher villain, Big Dick Charlie. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that movie. When did that movie come out, Andrew? <laughs> the viral fame of the character continued to spawn more and more attention. It was only a matter of time before Slenderman made the silver screen big budget film debut that we had all been waiting for. 
There were a few films based on Slenderman, but the most mainstream adaptation was released in 2018, titled Slenderman. The film stars Javier Botet and Joey King and was directed by Sylvian White and written by David Burke. The film centers on a group of friends who summon the Slenderman and who then are plagued by his presence and malicious intent. Despite outcry from fans, the film was greenlit with a PG-13 rating. Slenderman was released on August 10th, 2018 and grossed $51 million worldwide off of a budget of $10 million. Unfortunately, the film was met with largely negative reactions, both from fans and critics, one of whom called this film a, quote, undercooked serving of creepypasta, end quote. I have not seen this film. The person was really proud of that one. Yeah. Yeah, I, ha- I have not. Because of that review, you read that and you're like, it's not going to get better than this. It's not going to get better than an undercooked serving of creepypasta. Yeah, no, I-, I haven't seen it mostly because everybody that I know that's seen it is just like, it's doo-doo. And I was like, all right, cool. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I-, I actually, I never heard the backlash or the f- or the negative press about it of like, because it sucked or because it was PG-13. Um, I actually heard a lot of negative press about it as being exploitative because it was sort of made it was it was made exactly to capitalize off of the the stabbing that we're going to talk about and i I remember reading a lot of a lot of a lot of uh negative press about it of people you know say you know wanting it to be you know trying to petition sony to not make it or shelve it or whatever because i thought they thought that it was disrespectful of this real life event that happened because they were clearly making it to coincide with the popularity the the newfound popularity is the wrong word but the new the newfound interest in slenderman based on this true crime event um but yeah uh, a pg-13 movie about slenderman chasing people around i just i can't there, i don't know what it is but for some for some reason i just have I, like everything about slenderman just turns me off i have i'm just like every time i'm, I'm just like that sound i i, I that sounds like nothing i want to see what if robert england was was slenderman i would watch slenderman versus big dick charlie <laughs> i'd watch that movie too yeah yeah i would definitely watch that movie because you know Slenderman is the only one with hands that are long enough to get around. Yeah, to, that's that's his weakness. You could incapacitate him with a with a really good handy, but nobody can do it. Only Slenderman can. Yeah, indeed. I think that's actually the origin story of why Slenderman doesn't have a face. He took a he took a face shot from Big Dick Charlie, and it just blew his features off. It's cal. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say it's it's just calcified cum over his face. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Oh my god! But I kind of like that it. I kind of like that it like sandblasted off his facial features. <laughs> Act three: Beware the Slender Man. The most terrifying episode involving the Slenderman happened four years before the ill-reviewed Slenderman movie came out, and it happened in real life. The legend of Slenderman's popularity and internet ubiquity reached an all-time high when an attempted murder was carried out in his name by two tween girls. On October 31st, 2014, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, two 12-year-old girls stabbed their mutual friend 19 times. Why would they do that? What would drive two literal children to perform such a heinous act? They did it for a simple reason. 
They believed that the Slender Man was completely real and they wanted to curry favor with him. They had an undiluted desire to become proxies of the Slender Man. The palest man, the blackest suit, bigger than the tallest brute. Fear the man, the Slender Man, for he can do what no one can. Came upon a 12 year old female who she appears to be stabbed. She appears to be what? Stabbed? Stabbed? Wire and Geyser are accused of stabbing the friend and leaving her for dead. Police say the suspects were inspired by a character on a website Slenderman, a faceless ghoul. We never thought she could possibly believe that it was real. Anisha told me we had to. She said that he'd kill our families. She needed to prove that Slender Man existed and would be able to do that by killing somebody. You forget how much it sucks to be a kid. They don't know how to differentiate between fantasy and reality. People are captivated by Slender Man. That's what I call power. To believe in the boogeyman isn't that hard. And they believe it was real. She lifts up her Morgan Geyser and Anissa Weyer were two seemingly normal children by any traditional metric. However, unbeknownst to their friends and family, they had become radicalized by tales of the Slenderman. They had become completely enamored with him and were convinced that he was, in fact, a real entity. They lured their mutual acquaintance, a girl named Peyton Lautner, into a neighboring forest, a place called David's Park, and convinced her to play a game of hide-and-seek with them. But they both quickly turned on her. One held her down and the other stabbed her 19 times in the chest, torso, and legs. After they concluded the act, the two girls stood up, drenched in blood, and said that they would go get help. Despite this claim, neither girl said anything that would result in directing medical aid to a grievously wounded Peyton Lautner. But Peyton didn't give up. Realizing no help was coming, Peyton crawled through the forest until she discovered a path. Luckily, a bicyclist happened across her and quickly called 911. Despite stab wounds to several vital organs and the fact that one thrust missed piercing an artery by a single millimeter, Peyton survived. Despite their ages, both girls faced criminal charges in 2017. So we both watched this movie, uh, Beware the Slender Man. What was your level of familiarity with this story prior to us? I mean, I know we've both talked about our history with actual Slender Man stuff, but specifically, you know, this true crime story related to Slenderman. Were you aware of it prior to watching this documentary? Yeah, for sure. I never watched the documentary at all when it came out, but I was very aware of the story because at the time I was the editor in chief for a viral news site and we did a lot of true crime stuff. Any of the big news stories or even weird little like Atlas Obscura type stories in that time frame of 2013 to like 2017, so we we definitely followed that story with all the different updates that it had. And I was I was sort of abreast of it at all points. It was very fascinating. And it's interesting because that was kind of at the beginning of my coming into the realization that there was this really interesting aspect of 
the you know the the chaos magic of Slenderman going from this Photoshop picture to like compelling two girls to like genuinely attempt to murder somebody. But I definitely it, it's interesting. I, I definitely sort of as the story was unfolding and just reading it from the perspective of the mainstream news media and the way that they were reporting on it, I definitely thought of the girls in a little less humanized of a way of like, oh, these these girls are psychopaths and they are they fucking tried to murder their friend. And the documentary definitely humanizes them a lot more, um, which is interesting. Yeah, the the documentary basically follows them. It interviews all of their their family members and it uh, it kind of shows what their lives were like prior to the crime and the ensuing fallout. And then it uh, it basically follows them through the entire trial up until they're convicted. And the documentary includes footage of them being interviewed by police officers asking fairly banal, simple questions. And the girls in this kind of bizarrely open way confessing to the crimes in in that that was what was most striking to me i mean one my my through the whole thing i was just like extremely disturbed by the 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 little girls it was really really hard to watch them you know because there's the two girls one of them is kind of the one that is maybe has some schizophrenic leanings and is somebody who's in air quotes a loner and you know in the in the social connotations that come along with that you know and the other little girl just seemed like somebody who kind of was just like oh okay sure we're just playing a game and then maybe got sucked into the game too much does that make sense well i mean the dynamic of it is really interesting because so basically there's these two little girls and one of them is named morgan geyser and the other one is named anissa wire basically morgan was friends with this other girl uh peyton uh who for some reason goes by the name bella they never explained that but i guess it was just her nickname or something and they were they were like childhood friends for their whole lives and then she recently became friends with this with the anissa girl and as the documentary kind of explains the parents had always experienced with morgan Noticing that she didn't seem to express empathy in a way that you, you know, you might expect a, a kid to do. And so there was already this existing issue that I don't think they really thought too much about. It was just kind of an odd thing that they would sort of kind of give them pause every once in a while. But she befriended this other girl, Anissa, and Anissa is she, yeah, like you said, she's like the loner, really obsessed with internet culture. You know, kind of just like didn't have any friends, just sat in on her computer all day, just like going deep down weird wormholes, watching strange YouTube videos and, you know, the kind of the kind of things that a lot of us did as 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 kids, uh, maybe not that young because, uh, you know, the Internet kind of didn't really exist in that capacity whenever whenever we were. Uh, how old, how old were they at the at this time? I felt uh, somewhere between like ten and thirteen. Yeah, the, when when we were that old, the internet was like, here's this goosebumps fan site. Like it just it just didn't have this element to it. Uh, but definitely in later on in in high school and stuff like that. And she was obsessed with the creepypasta stuff and and Slenderman, and she introduced Morgan to it. And it was almost like this weird chemical uh, reaction. Like you take two chemicals that are harmless on their own, but then you mix them together and then they explode. Anissa's like unique obsession with creepypastas 
and Slenderman and sort of starting to kind of trick herself into feeling like it was real just set off something in Morgan where she just had a in a she had a difficulty parsing reality from fantasy and as you know we learn later on literally triggering her schizophrenia and you know the fact that she literally hallucinates things and has visions and sees things and hears things and that she believes are real and so it was this weird situation where that, you know, Anissa, she seemed to have sort of freaked herself out into believing this stuff was real. Like she just got so deep into it that she radicalized herself, which is interesting because it just reminds me of a lot of the stuff we, we're dealing with now where people are, you know, getting radicalized by social media into believing these fucking insane stories about how like politicians are satanic demon worshipers that are eating babies or whatever. Like it's literally no different. It's exactly the same. And it's really interesting to see you watch this and you're like, this is what's happening. It's easier to examine when it's a kid because they're, as you said before, they're just like way more forthcoming about the, you know, the truth about things. It's almost like getting to look at the psychology of a radicalized conspiracy theorist bisected where you can actually like study the details of it because it's a kid who's just like saying, you know, there's they have no filter. But she had sort of like radicalized herself into believing this stuff. But then Morgan, because of her sort of on early onset schizophrenia, was willing to like take it to the next level and manifest it into reality. And it's, so it's interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting because it's not like when you see these types of, these types of things when it's adults or older teenagers and stuff like that, where they start blaming each other and coming up with stories about how they were the victim and the other person did everything and all this stuff. They're, they're very open and honest. And it, it's this weird kind of like two handed situation where it wasn't one person like really coercing the other one. They really kind of worked together on it where, Anissa was like she had become convinced that they had to kill this girl or else Slenderman was going to kill them. And Morgan allowed that to convince her that it was going to happen. And it was almost like it was almost like passing the baton where it's like, okay, like I think this is real, but I'm a little bit more grounded in reality. But now I'm going to like radicalize this person who literally can't tell the difference between fiction and reality. And they'll just take it off into a whole new level. And they're like, let's fucking murder her. Let's, I got, I got the knife. Like, let's go do it. And then in that weird way that when you're a kid, sometimes you can be coerced into doing things that you don't want to do, but you just kind of something that as an adult, you'd be like, no fucking way am I doing that? Or just no thanks and walking away. As a kid, you're almost like, you feel like you have to. When somebody says something, you just like, you're like, I guess I have to do that. You, you just can't, con- you can't conceive of saying no to something. So as Morgan is going more and more in the direction of like, we're going to really do this. And this is like kind of going along with it because she's like, I guess I guess it's, it's like a feedback loop where they're both over and over again, like ratcheting up the belief and convincing each other that this is real more and more. And if they hadn't been together, that wouldn't have happened. But every time one of them says something, it further validates it to the other person. And the other person says something and it further validates it to the, to the point where they're in the woods with a fucking knife. Yeah. And, and, and it's this weird thing too, where they, they, they seem like really good kids up until a point where they seem like just normal, you know, they just want to have friends. They just want to, you know, hang out, watch dumb YouTube videos. And then when they start, plotting this murder 
which is such a strange thing to even say. But when once they start plotting this murder, then they start like almost like subconsciously talking themselves out of it. Like there's all of these. Basically, their, their plan was that they would invite this third girl to spend the night, Bella, to spend the night. And then they would kill her in her sleep and then leave her in the house. And then they would leave the house and start walking to where they this national park in Colorado where they where they heard Slenderman's mansion is. And then once it starts happening, then they're like, nah, we shouldn't do it here. So then they try to take her to the woods and they're like, okay, we're going to, you know, I, one of the, one of the girls is like, I, I don't want to stab her with her eyes open. So I want her to close her eyes because it'll be easier to kill her with her cl- eyes closed. So she like slams her head into the side of a, like a, a porta potty, not porta potty. What are those? those they're just like an, like an outhouse style, like concrete structure, you know, like those public restrooms. And she's like, lay down on the ground and close your eyes. And she's like, well, you just fucking slammed my head in the ground. I'm not going to fucking do that. What are you doing? And so she's like, all right, let's play, let's play hide and seek then. So they, you know, play this hide and seek. And that's when they end up getting her to lay down or whatever. And they hold her down and stab her. And it, it's this weird thing of like, you can tell that there's something inside of them that's like trying to not do it while the natural momentum of their friendship has set them on this course to carrying out this really awful thing. Where it's almost kind of like they've said aloud to each other, we have to kill this person. And now they're both socially obligated to continue pushing the other person, even though neither of them want to, even though they both want to, even though neither of them want to. You know what I mean? It's this really strange social dynamic that it's like kind of like you're saying when you're a little kid where you just say yes to things because you want acceptance or to be liked or whatever. Yeah, well, it's like it's like that when you look out of a when you're in a tall building and you look out the window and you you know in your mind you're like I wonder what it would be like if I just jumped out like the, you know those 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 weird like intrusive thoughts you have or you're just like what if I just you know drove off this cliff or whatever it's like you're not you it's it's not like a suicidal thing and it's not anything you would ever actually do it's just this weird thing that human beings do where you just like your your mind goes to these morbid places you know by reflex it's like that thing in the in, in inception like if i told you not to think of an elephant you know what what are you thinking of an elephant or whatever you just you just your mind just like goes to these dark places and apropos of of it being in a vacuum and the very fact that you wouldn't want to do that is why you're thinking about it. And it's like, it's like that. That's what they were doing. But then they shared it with each other out loud. And so these thoughts that every person has of like, I wonder what would it be like if I just fucking murdered somebody or whatever that, you know, they're, they're completely harmless. They're not like, secret psychopathic thoughts they're not they're not indicative of yeah anything. andrew it's not a psychopathic thought to love freddy krueger and have wish fulfillment about murdering annoying people in your life exactly i've i built up to this i, I this whole thing this is my tapestry <laughs> they shared that information out loud with each other and it brought it into existence and then as you just said then at that point it just became this like social ping pong where these thoughts had been manifested in reality. They've externalized these thoughts and then that sort of made them real enough to where they thought that they wanted to do it. And then every time they sort of had second thoughts, there was like a bunch of variables in the way to prevent them from backpedaling where it's like, oh, I can't go back on this now because then she'll think that I'm a coward. Or if I say I don't want to do this now, like she'll think that, you know, I'm not committed to Slender Man. 
and it just pushed them and pushed them all the way. And I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the documentary and how maybe it had a little bit of like a editorialized bias to it. But all that aside, it appeared to me very clearly from watching the documentary and also reading, you know, you know, actual news reporting about the story that neither of them wanted to do this at all. It wasn't like a thing where like one of them was secretly like sadistic and like loved this and was like a fucking sociopath that just wanted to kill somebody. Neither of them wanted to do this. And it's, it's so crazy because it, it's like, it, it was like the highest stakes version of two kids playing pretend of when two kids like boast back and forth to each other and just keep making up more and more outlandish lies about something that they've done or whatever. Like I remember when I was a kid, I remember I just have this distinct memory when I was really young, like I think kindergarten because I because I, I was homeschooled. So I went to kindergarten and then after that I was homeschooled. So it must have been kindergarten because it was a public school. And I remember I remember just being with a kid and we were going around telling kids that we had seen rated R movies, which we had not seen. And it was like we were like bragging. We're like, yeah, I saw this movie. It's rated R. And it was like that. And it was like it was literally like that, except for instead of just like bragging about some dumb lie they were like convincing each other that they wanted to murder somebody. Yeah, I think that there's something to where there's something to the you're looking for a connection when you're that age outside of your familial unit and you want it so badly that you're willing to do just about anything. And that's kind of what this is. These two people wanted that connection bad enough to murder somebody. Like they wanted that connection so bad that they were like, this is our thing now. We're like an army of two and we are in service of this higher calling, this like bizarre dark religion formed in the bowels of the internet that we are the the proselytites for. Come on, Morgan. You could have just invented a fucking program for illegally sharing music for free. <laughs> Yeah, but that's not as that's not as uh, as dramatic as stabbing someone 19 times. Jesus. Yeah, I guess we'll talk about a couple other phases of this after this. I want to talk about the documentary itself and also some of the ethical, moral and philosophical things that they talk about in the documentary and kind of my thoughts on the way that they presented them. But uh, just still talking about the girls, watching the footage of them being interrogated side by side was really interesting because they they both do not seem like average kids. I mean, to a certain degree, they are, but also just hearing them just having a conversation post having attempted to murder somebody. They don't sound like average kids, but they but in very different ways. Um, Anissa, she sounds like a an Internet nerd, like she sounds like a, like the way she talks and the ways that she communicates and the things that she says like she reminds me of kids that I went to high school with who were like really into salad fingers and weird internet bullshit and she also comes off as like weirdly precocious and kind of like older than her actual age like she sounds like she sounds like older she sounds she's like as a 11 year old or whatever she was she sounds like she's in high school, just in terms of the way that she talks about things, which I guess maybe is probably because her vocabulary is informed by the fact that she just lives on the internet and she just consumes all this content, you know, created by older people. And then Morgan just seems 
very kind of like distant and disaffected by things. Like she seems like she's just kind of like, this isn't really happening. Like I'm just kind of, she just seems very disconnected from all of it. She's like, yeah, I guess we did that. Very, very odd. Yeah, we had to murder her because uh, otherwise there would be a man that was angry at us. Who is this man? Eh, he was a man. Yeah. And then, and then, and, and, and their stories like line up. Like I said, they, they, they didn't, they didn't tell stories that like painted the other one as more at fault or whatever. Their stories just exactly lined up. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the documentary as a whole? Like I said before, it humanized them much more. I mean, in- incredibly more. First of all, I feel like the, the doc, and I don't know how you felt about this because, you, you know, you have a little bit different of an experience, but that documentary was way darker than I was expecting it to be. Um, it, or it hit me in a much darker way than I expected it to. Like I thought I was going to watch it and be like, Oh, this is just like some crazy true crime shit. But the fact that it was about these little kids and, this sort of horrific event that they could never come back from and you know the destruction of innocence and stuff it just it really it really got me it shook me to watch it i was was talking to my wife and i was just like we got to watch the kids and look for signs of weird stuff like this like we if something like this is going on we got to like catch it early and we gotta we gotta put them into therapy or something like we can't let something like this happen like i got i got got really freaked out about it because that's like my worst fear Aside from watching this documentary, my worst fear is that I'm going to like completely fuck up as a parent and turn my son into a serial killer or something. That's like my worst fear. The movie really humanizes them and their reasons why they did what they did. And it really kind of makes you root for them to not be tried as adults and be given some kind of sentence that involves more of a mental health path rather than an incarceration path. Uh, cause you just think you're like, man, like, yeah, this, this, this little girl just had like undiagnosed schizophrenia. Like it's, it's horrific what she did, but it's kind of not fair. It's not fair that because nobody in her life noticed that this was going on and, and, you know, was able to like get her help in time or if that was even possible, just because this happened to happen to her, like this, this sequence of events happened to transpire to trigger this in her in this way that she just has to like, her whole life has to be ruined because of that. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to parse because on one hand, you're like, yeah, it just doesn't seem fair. But then on the other hand, you're like, but she tried to fucking murder this kid. Like, especially like what, what if she had murdered her? Like that, like, would that still apply? Would you still be as sympathetic towards her if she had literally murdered her? It's really hard to parse what, how you feel about it. But, but the one thing I'll say, which I kind of didn't realize until like towards the end, and I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it or if you have any insight onto like my, maybe why they chose to do this. But the, the movie, you know, really goes into like humanizing them and trying to get you to be, you know, sympathetic towards their plight. And it shows it's all these interviews with the parents talking about their upbringing and all this stuff and, and all this footage with them and doctors sort of explaining the psychological issues behind what they did and stuff. And the movie never once shows any footage of interviews with the girl or the parents of the girl, the, the, the Peyton. You never see the other perspective of it. So the movie is like completely biased in that it only serves to humanize them and gives you no alternate perspective on the situation at all. You don't get to ever hear what the other parents thought about this or how they're what they're going through or any of that stuff or what the daughter's going through or how she feels about it. And so naturally, in a vacuum of having none of that perspective presented, you're just going to side with them because they're the protagonists of the film and no other perspective is presented. Yeah, the thing that was so striking to me was the stuff about the from the parents, um, specifically the father of Morgan. 
Yeah, Morgan. Was he the one? No, he's was he the one that was like really paranoid about the, his other kid getting an iPad for school? No, that was the father of Anissa. Oh, okay, yeah. For, so for the father of Anissa, like that guy seemed very fractured as a person, and like I don't know, I just it was there was a, I felt a lot of empathy for him because I he seemed like somebody who was just like I wasn't there. But I also was there all the time. Like, I don't know what more I could have done. And that tension of like knowing that you missed the the thing, like whatever that train leaving the station was, you weren't strong enough or aware enough or you didn't see any of the signals or maybe there weren't any signals or the Monday morning quarterbacking of those life altering decisions just seemed like a living hell. Yeah, but also the the thing that kind of struck me about that thread of the story and and the, the movie doesn't really go out of its way. There, there's no like thesis of the movie. It, there's no like the moral of the story is this is bad or whatever that doesn't really have that. It definitely it definitely has a bias towards like getting you to sympathize with the girls. But there's no like there's no like message. But in that thread of the story, the thing that's talked about a lot is him sort of grappling with he essentially blames not not that he totally shirks responsibility. He doesn't say like this wasn't my fault or whatever. He definitely does feel like it's his fault. He does feel guilt for it. But he's also, you know, a, a lot of what he's a lot of what that storyline is talking about is him just basically saying like this is caused by her having an iPad and like that sh- this this whole thing happened because she was on her iPad and looking at all this stuff and sort of like, you know, to a certain degree, scapegoating the Internet and saying like this happened because my kid was on the Internet. And then, you know, later on, they show like an, a, a part where he's grappling with the fact that his other son also has an iPad, which he's like required to have for school or something. And he's like apprehensive about it. He doesn't like it. And he wishes he doesn't, he didn't have it, but he, but the school like needs them to have it for the education programs that they have or whatever. And I just thought that was, he, he came off to me as such a, like, he almost didn't seem real. He seemed like a fake concerned parent from a movie or something like that, where he's like these kids with their iPads. It's like, I couldn't even pretend to put myself in his shoes and act like I would do have done everything right. And that I would have done it better or whatever. Or if like, if that was my daughter, she wouldn't have done this or whatever. I'm not saying that whatsoever. Cause anything had happened. There's so many different variables for how people turn out the way that they turn out and, things that are completely out of your control as a parent that can affect your kid in a way that something could happen and, you know, you you couldn't have prevented it. But just in terms of after the fact with him sort of grappling with this, to me, it's it's not the issue is not as complicated as he's making it out to be. It, it's not like there's, there's it's not like a pass fail of like, does my kid have an iPad or doesn't my kid have an iPad? It has nothing to do with the iPad. It has nothing to do with the internet. Don't let your kid use it in that way. Like if they're, if they're required to use it for the, for school, there are parental locks. You can turn off, you can have it where it's like you can't go on certain sites and, or the internet turns off at a certain time. Like the concept of going on the internet is not inherently evil, but a, an 11 year old kid or a 10 year old kid probably shouldn't have unmitigated access to the internet in the privacy of their room with no supervision whatsoever. That's the whole issue with the way that people get exposed to things all the time is because of algorithms and the way that they suggest content. And, you know, your, your kid will, you know, you give your kid a tablet or whatever, and they go off in another, another room with YouTube. And at first they start off watching, you know, like a, a video of like a sing along from frozen. And then after an hour, 
Then they're watching weird adults cosplaying as frozen characters and like peeing on each other and just weird bullshit. And they should definitely not be seeing that. But you shouldn't let your kid go off into a room, close the door and have unmitigated access to the fucking general Internet. Like, that's insane. Yeah, I think boundaries are good. But I also think that, uh, you know, regardless of those boundaries, uh, kids are wily. They're going to they're going to find ways around those things. Right. And I yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know that it it read as black and white to me Uh, when I watched the documentary. I uh, it, it felt like somebody who had attempted to be a present parent and either they fucked up or the situation just got the fuck away from them and somebody got really fucking hurt and a scorched earth approach to that or a an instinct to have a scorched earth scorched earth approach to it i think that's pretty understandable i mean i i agree with what you're saying that the platonic ideal of the situation is put fucking boundaries on your kid, bro. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely think that uh, in light of what happened, I it's definitely understandable to be like, you're never touching an iPad again. Like that's that's a that's a that's a normal, reasonable reaction to a very specific um, a very specific occurrence. Like whenever whenever the Internet like compels your kid to try to murder somebody, like regardless of what the right philosophical approach to it is. It's totally understandable to be like, you're, you're never, I mean, they, they literally do that with, in the law. Like when, when people get caught for hacking, they get, they get rulings that they aren't allowed to be on computers. Like they, people will get like their legal right to be on a computer taken away from them for years. And if they like, if they get caught on a computer, it's like violating parole and they get like arrested. I, I, I sort of was a little wary of the, just the general, it was it felt like it was like so close to being like a satanic panic type situation where it was trying to say that like the Internet was evil and it was turning our kids into murderers or whatever. When in reality, like you said, uh, you can't just force a kid to not figure out how to expose themselves to things. And it also probably isn't the right thing to just completely shut them off, whether or not they could figure out a way around it or not. But that's just it's just really like treating a symptom of the actual issue, which is you should be able to sit down and have more open conversations with your your kids and, you know, set boundaries of, you know, when they're allowed to do certain things and understanding that things are probably going to happen out of your control and they're going to sneak behind your back and do things. But ideally, if you have a more open and honest relationship with them, that they won't be as compelled to do things like that, to try to sneak things behind your back. And if they are sort of looking at weird stuff that's freaking them out, that they would be more willing to share that with you and you could talk it through with them rather than them just like in their room with the door shut and the lights off, just like fucking convincing themselves that there was like an evil, you know, child murderer coming after them and it never coming into their minds that they could talk with you about that and share that information with you and talk it through with you. But that's also another thing that I thought was interesting is, this whole event, uh, and that was kind of what I alluded to earlier, that the internet has gotten so big and culture has gotten so big and fractured that it's so surprising to me. I remember when this happened and it was, it was a big news story. It was by no means some like thing that was like under, the, you know, that flew under the radar. It was a huge new, news story. And watching the documentary, I kind of was struck with the fact that I'm so surprised if this had happened whenever we were kids, it would have started a cultural backlash of like coalitions of moms against Slenderman or like, you know, you know, parents marching in the streets uh, talking about how the Internet was evil and that it should be shut down. 
and there would be like there would be news stories, you know, around the clock being like the, you know, Slenderman is Satan's new tool and it's manipulating our children into becoming murderers. And it's so surprising to me that no, nothing like that happened. There was no cultural backlash to this. There was a news story and it was very big. And I never remember hearing anybody being like, oh, the you know, our kids are being corrupted by, you know, memes or whatever like that. It's it's so crazy to me that nothing like that happened. And it's just indicative to me of the fact that everything, everything about culture now is just so big and fractured that like something like that can't happen. Like those things just can't happen because there's so much going on that there's no longer enough bandwidth for everybody to rally around one large narrative unless it's like really big like it has to be like fucking monumentally big like things like this just end up kind of being blips but it takes something like QAnon or like any of these things like it has to it has to be like a fucking banger in order to like take root in everybody's conscious yeah yeah it has to be a bunch of neo-fascists storming the capital attempting to overturn the election yeah but i mean that's insane that it like it has to go that big in order to like reach everybody anymore like it's like this weird like escalation of stakes because back in our days back in back when we were kids it was literally just like this board game is gonna fucking kill everybody like that was the stakes there there just isn't a a singular monoculture anymore in the same way that there was JJ the fourth amongst many other things loves Scooby-Doo and you know, you go into Spotify and you uh, you know, you, you search for Scooby-Doo. And so you play a song and it's like the theme song from like, he, you know, he likes a bunch of the different theme songs from all the various shows. So like there's the original Scooby-Doo, where are you theme song? The, the one from the Scooby-Doo movies, what's new Scooby-Doo pup, like all these different ones. So you play one, and whenever whenever it stops playing, it'll auto play to a related song. So you start you start you play the Scooby Doo theme song, and then it'll end, and then it'll auto play, and it'll probably play like the What's New Scooby Doo theme song, or maybe it'll play some weird like pop punk cover of the Scooby Doo Where Where Are You theme. But eventually, some there's been some times where he just has the phone and he's listening to the Scooby-Doo songs and it's just auto-playing to other related things. And sometimes it's like, it just plays like the DuckTales theme song or something tangentially related. And then sometimes I've like been working or just not paying attention. And then suddenly I realize that the song has like auto-played into some song that just has the name Scooby-Doo in it. That's like a very explicit song. And I'm just like, oh no, stop. You can't listen to that. And, you know, that's whenever I'm there, like supervising, but I'm just kind of like working. So I'm like, sometimes it can kind of get away from me. But, you know, you could only imagine what happens if you just like sent your kid off into their room and just like you're on your own with this algorithm that's going to babysit you. And it's designed to just continue feeding the endorphin hits that you need. And that'll eventually ratchet it up to more, more and more salacious things to the point where you've become radicalized into believing these crazy things because you've just gone down this wormhole that's gotten more and more specific to the point where it's like this one hyper specific thing that's that's been like crafted in in like molten fucking lava to hit every button in your brain and like slenderman with these kids and uh it's not like censorship it's like it's not like oh yeah like we should ban these things it's such a complicated topic to wrap your mind around because the thing about supervision and moderation and things like that, I, you know, that, that is, I think that's a strong pillar in the conversation. But as you said before, you can't do that forever. You can't do that all the time. You can't guarantee 
that they're not going to figure out ways around that. There's just to a certain degree, there are there are limits where you become powerless and then it becomes scary. It becomes it, it goes off into uh, un, you know, uncertain territory, something that you can't control, something that you don't have personal cur- curation power over. And that's where it becomes very scary. And then you start being like, oh man, what are they, what are they getting into? What are they being exposed to whenever I'm not around or whenever they're figuring things out? But whenever I was a kid, I saw all kinds of crazy shit. And I definitely was like in my room alone looking at shit and like plunging the depths of the internet and circumnavigating my parents' restrictions and whatever. Not that they really even had any to begin with, but none of it affected me. Like I, I like I, I didn't go off some deep end and become radicalized. And I ha- always had a very clear boundary with what was real and what wasn't. And I always like none of this stuff like warped my mind or whatever the fear is that parents have of like what's going to happen to their kids. Am I saying that that means I'm like more well adjusted than other people? I don't, I, I don't know why. I don't think it's, I'm not saying it's that specifically. I just saying that like for whatever reason, my particular personality type, when I was a kid, I could look at whatever and read whatever. And it, I, I sort of viewed it more in an observational way of like, Oh, that's interesting. And it never like fucked me up in any kind of way. You've also, you've also grown a lot though since getting right with Xenu. Yeah. I mean, but that you're just, that's just furthering my point. Like I, I, I have zero thetans. I am completely clear. I've, I've gone a hundred percent clear, but then there are other people that obviously are affected by those things. And that's the scary part is like, is, is JJ the fourth going to be able to like sneak behind my back and watch some fucked up horror movie when he's way too young to watch it and be fine like I was? Or is he going to be like my, brother and like want to kill people like or is he gonna be like my brother and, and poop his pants or is he gonna be like your brother and become a juggalo yeah this is like the that that's the fucking that's the scary part the ambiguity of is he gonna become a podcaster who likes to research interesting stories in his free time the the height of an exciting lifestyle full of intrigue and high stakes danger or is he going to become a fucking murderer? Or is he going to become a juggalo? Or is he going to be a big dick Charlie? Yeah, or or that. That's the that's the silent fourth one. What I'm trying to say and what that kind of lends itself towards is it, it's hard to wrap your mind around like, it's hard to wrap my mind around what the right thing is to do because it's such an impossible, it's an, such an impossible question of like, when is the right time for your kids to look at this or have access to this or have their own, autonomy to do this and when when should you um restrict that and when when does that become too oppressive and when are you overstepping your boundaries and you know not trusting them it's 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 a very difficult minefield to navigate despite their ages both the girls faced criminal charges and in 2017 anissa weir pled guilty to attempted second degree homicide and was ultimately sentenced to 25 years to life in prison She was also institutionalized in a state psychiatric ward until the age of 37 years old. Morgan Geyser accepted a plea bargain in which she would be given a sentence of 40 years to life, as well as be placed in a mental health facility for an indeterminate amount of time. She was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. I cannot stress enough because these these girls were 10 or 11 or whatever, and they've just been in incarcerated since then, whether it's in a, you know, a NISA's in like a juvenile detention facility and 
Morgan is in a mental institution and they're like 19 now or maybe even 20. And I cannot stress enough that this is my deepest fear. Like my deepest fear at some point it was like dying in a fire or something. But my deepest fear, which I cannot overstress enough, is that I do things wrong and my kids become serial killers. Like this is the this is the worst case scenario to me. Yeah, I mean it is the darkest of possible timelines um, because it's something that's a it's a waking hell it's not just like oh there's this one instance and then you can put the pieces together and move on or not move on or whatever but that it's like a it's a story that follows you for the rest of your life it's a it impacts the lives of everyone in the immediate vicinity it permanently shapes the identity of the kids involved it's yeah it's existentially harrowing and and yeah i mean they're they're fucking they were tried as adults they're still locked up yeah i mean the whole thing is just like watching a fucking car wreck in slow motion um it's so uh it's very depressing on like every level so you know if you're if you're trying to be depressed irene taylor brodsky's beware the slender man now streaming on hbo max yeah much darker than you kind of anticipate when I talked about how we were going to do the Chris Hansen episode, because kind of the point of the Chris Hansen episode or like the 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 motivating factor for doing it was kind of the later stuff where he had become like a weird con man YouTuber guy that that was that was like what the episode was co- sort of based around. And so whenever I presented the idea of doing it and as I went into writing it initially, I was like, oh, this is going to be like a fun romp. And then as I started writing it and started realizing like, oh, we have to actually go through this entire whole early career and stuff to get to this point. And then at the end of it was like, this is no, this isn't a fun romp. Like, I mean, we, we had fun with it in a couple of places when it was appropriate, but like that, it was like, I went into it thinking like, oh, this is going to be like a funny episode. And then it was just like the darkest episode we did. And that's how, th- that's how this felt where I was like, I didn't think it was gonna be a fun romp, but I was like, oh, it's, you know, just gonna watch a true crime documentary about this crazy thing that happened. And then I was like, this is fucking dark. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, oof. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't, no thank you. I don't want any of it. You could just take that back to the store. In conclusion, the Slender Man is as ubiquitous today as he's ever been. He's become a fixture of popular culture, an urban myth of the digital age, a character who's taken up residence in our collective imaginations. His eerie, inhuman arms and blank, expressionless face speak to the darkness within all of us. His unknowable, otherworldly motivation, his bizarre abilities, and his iconic silhouette has captivated a viral legion of fans that will only continue to grow. And with more Slenderman films, video games, and anonymous forum posts likely on the way, it's unlikely that he's going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, we, 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 we touched on it a little bit throughout the episode, and we've definitely touched on it in previous episodes, but... Um, you know, the, the really, the really fascinating thing, you know, aside from the darkness of the documentary and kind of how real it gets, the really interesting thing is just the idea that something can go from, from a, from like a Photoshop contest where somebody's like, I'm just trying to make a really creepy image to like a religion for 11 year olds that causes somebody to try to murder their friend. It, you know, it just speaks to the way that, uh, the way that, the way that the internet taps into something primordial about the way that our minds work. 
that, you know, in, in regular life, it's how people can convince large groups of people to believe in something that they're, you know, that they want them to believe. And human beings manipulate that vulnerability all the time. And sometimes it's bad and sometimes it's innocuous and it's just fine. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're trying to convince somebody that your thing is the best product of other, all the products of that are available. Um, that's a form of that, of just like tapping into someone's, you know, brain and convincing them of something using, you know, charisma and, 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 um, persuasion and things like that. Uh, but then the internet, our brains just weren't designed to have this much information presented to it so quickly all the time. And for some people, some people, they just can't handle it, especially kids. All these millions of kids on the internet who are being bombarded with this stuff, with this type of information. And it's like when you see in TV shows or whatever, forensic TV shows, how they, they'll put like bacteria in one of those like machines that like speeds up the evolution of it where it'll, you know, make it, it's like that. It's like it advances the way that our minds are able to be shaped and manipulated by ideas to like such an alarming rate that it's almost unfathomable it's like and and it, and really this whole thing serves as a really interesting microcosm of the way that this stuff happens in general with like QAnon and the way that the internet tends to dictate how all of our culture and politics goes now how how it shapes and and um directs um culture at large often in very destructive and kind of disturbing ways how you know large majorities of people will believe something that's completely false or completely horrible completely destructive because of a fucking meme that's spreading around on a social media channel and uh, looking at this story is you know it's just it's it's disturbing because of how prescient it is to everything that has been going on for the last several years and as scary as it is, as, as scary as this specific story is, and as disturbing it is as it is that these little girls would do this, um, at, at least at the end of the day, you can tell yourself like, oh, they're children. Like, you know, children have impressionable minds. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed to have unmitigated access to these things. And that nips it in the bud. But when it becomes adults, that's just scary. It's scary that an adult can be the, as vulnerable to stuff like this as a 10-year-old child on such a wide scale. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me on the internet at heydavebaker.com, or you can buy my comics, Fuck Off Squad, Action Hospital, Night Hunters, Star Trek Voyager. Uh, or you can read my new book that's going to be published in June by Dark Horse, uh, Everyone is Tulip at everyoneistulip.com. You can read it right now. Uh, whole first issue is up there and uh, three pages get uploaded a week. Andrew, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me stalking through the shadows in the, your local playground with my neatly tailored suit uh, clutching my seven foot two frame. As I walk amongst the children and beckon them towards me like a modern day Pied Piper as the tentacles slowly, slowly emerge from my back and reach out to claim their their, their next fallen ones. And uh, you can also find me at dapricerights.com where you can get my book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. You can also get the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency patches so that you too can be a junior sleuth. Of the Mystery Treehouse, you can get those at my store at dapricerights.com. You can get them at Dave's store at his website. You can also get them in the official merch site on deepcutspod.com. Yes.
Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com. And the Dead Boy Detectives.